Thank you for listening to Crossroads Community Church of Jefferson Hills. At Crossroads, our mission is to be the church by sharing and showing the love of Christ and inviting others to be recipients of Christ's love. Now, here is this week's message from Pastor Floyd Hughes. As you are making your way back to your uh, seats and getting situated, um, this morning I'm going to jump right into some scripture uh, as we share the last message in this series. Um, next week, actually, we'll do uh, the first time we'll do what's called a transitional message, kind of share a little bit about what we've talked about as we jump into the next series uh, for Christmas. But this week, I'm going to jump into scripture because there's only a couple of places in the Bible where we're given an actual glimpse of what takes place in heaven, where God kind of pulls back the curtain and says, hey, here's a picture of what life is like in heaven. Now, there are places where Jesus says the kingdom of God is like such and such, and then he describes, you know, the kingdom of God is like this, the kingdom of God is like that, and he uses some earthly equivalent to describe heaven, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about where we actually get the curtain pulled back, and then God says to someone, hey, take a look at this. This is what life is like in heaven, All right? And there's only a couple of places in Scripture. One of them, obviously the main one, is the book of Revelation, right? Uh, the book of Revelation is where not only do we get a glimpse of what's taking place in heaven, but we get a glimpse of the future, of the, the kind of uh, where God wraps up, as Mark has been teaching through our Bible study in Revelation, God wraps up everything for the people of Israel, his destiny for them. But we also see where God literally shakes the foundations of the earth itself in order so that the lost would become a part of true Israel, not necessarily descendants of Abraham, but what Paul says in Romans, true Israel, those who have come to know God by putting their faith in him like Abraham did. And so in the book of Revelation, we see this history unfold, but we also see parts that just give us a glimpse of what takes place in heaven. And, and this particular passage was kind of instrumental for why I wanted to do this particular series. In Revelation chapter 19, it says this, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like the loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. And what this voice is, this voice, it sounds like rushing waters. It's a great multitude because it's all the people and tribes and nations who are celebrating and rejoicing because they're now in heaven and they're with God for all eternity. I'll get to spend eternity with him. But then it says this, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean was given her to wear and fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. And for those who don't know this, we, the church, the body of Christ, not we at Crossroads, the church, all of the church, Throughout human history, we are what's called the bride of Christ. That's why throughout scripture, it says, husbands, treat your wives and love them 
like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And it's not a sexual thing. It's a community thing, a relationship thing where we are betrothed to Christ. We are his bride. And then it says this, then the angel said to me, that's said to John, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Because, I, I, and again, I don't have a verse for this, but if I had to guess, I would say that food and fellowship are part of God's love language because they're throughout the Bible, the feast, the fellowship, the community of people coming together. And we who are the church, right? It says, blessed are those people who are invited to be a part of the wedding supper of the Lamb. And the idea is, as I said throughout this series, is that we're the church, we're supposed to be, first of all, grateful that we are invited and included, but we're also supposed to be thankful Right? But we're also supposed to be inviting to other people. I mean, God was nice enough to invite us into his kingdom. And this season where everything's about food and fellowship and gatherings, we should be inviting other people uh, into our kingdom, family, so we can spend time with them. Now, there is um, one other place. Excuse me, there's several other places, but one of the other times where we're given a glimpse into the kingdom of heaven is in the book of Isaiah. Now, the book of Isaiah, some of you might have read through it, uh, it's one of those, it, it, it really deals with a lot of God judging the nation of Israel, but also it deals with a lot of God's promises to the nation of Israel. And Isaiah is the most quoted prophet throughout the New Testament. Hands down, he's quoted more times than any other prophet. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you have the Bible, open it up to the book of Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to look at that whole passage of scripture. And while you're turning here, I'm going to jump in and start reading because I'm only going to get a few verses in before I stop. So don't worry, you won't miss anything if you're not there yet. But in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 this is what we read, and some of you are familiar with this passage. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And I want to set the stage and explain a couple of things. First, he says, I saw the Lord. That word Lord is Adonai. It's often used as a reference for God, but it's also used a lot in the New Testament as a reference for Jesus. That's important. Also what's important is that in some of your Bibles, even though it's not part of the original text, you might have a subheading that says the call of Elisha, not Elijah, Isaiah, or the commission of Isaiah, because this passage talks about how God reached out to and called Isaiah and said, hey, I need you to go and share this message with your people. And it's important that we kind of understand why. Because Isaiah says, this happened in the year that King Uzziah died. In the year that King Uzziah died, bear with me for the history lesson for a moment, was in the year 739 BC. It's about 17 years before the entire northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed by the Assyrians. Now, here's why it's so important that Isaiah was called in that specific year. 
Let me just give you a little bit of backdrop. Stay in the book of Isaiah. Second Chronicles, we're told this. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 52 years. That's longer. On average, most kings reigned like 12 to 25 years. And he reigned twice as long as the average king. 52 years. His mother's name was Jecoliah. She was from Jerusalem. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Amaziah had done. He sought God during the days of Zechariah. Zechariah was the priest. There was a covenant relationship between the government and the religious culture. They worked together to help benefit the people. The king was supposed to reign and govern the people. The priest was supposed to intercede between the people and God so that they were in right standing with God. And as he sought God during the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. That fear isn't to be afraid of him. It's the reverential fear and respect for the holiness of God. Some versions, though, say he sought God and instructed him in the vision or purposes of God because that's the role that the church is supposed to play. Hey, you guys that are in the government, uh, don't go that direction because that's against the will of God because the government is supposed to serve God. But here's what happened. As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. But then later, after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Now, we might not think that's a big deal. But God had set up parameters. Here's what the government is supposed to do. Here's what the priests are supposed to do. The temple was a holy place. You couldn't enter it unless you had been all sin removed and atoned for. They had to cleanse themselves. They had to go through this entire ritual so that they were in right standing with God before they entered the temple of God. Uzziah got a little big-headed, as most government leaders do. And he thought, I don't need to do what the priests say. I'll just do what I want. So he entered the temple to burn incense, something that God had said only the priests could do. Eighty priests rushed him to try to stop him. He didn't listen. So God struck him with leprosy. And I think the message for us here is that, hey, there are some government leaders, doesn't matter, Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, whatever, that, yeah, they say, yeah, I'm, 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 I want to do what God's will. I'm a Christian. I go to church. But then when they get in positions of power, they succumb to the same thing, just as most of us would, and we begin to not do what God's wa God wants. We begin to do what we want. So this is what happened next. Right? So his son succeeds him. Jotham, who was his son, was 25 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. His mother's name was Jerusha, daughter of Zadok. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Uzziah had done. But unlike him, he did not enter the temple of the Lord. The people, however, continued the corrupt practices that Uzziah had put in place once his pride got a hold of him and he stopped following God. 
So in the year, this is when, this is the situation. There's, 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 even though Jotham is a God-honoring king who's in place, the people are still corrupt, and they're not following God. So this is what takes place in the year that King Uzziah died. God calls Isaiah to go speak to this corrupt people. In verse 2, he says, Above him, meaning the Lord, were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorpost and threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Now, let me expound on this a little bit, and, and, and we're going to tie all this together, because that word seraph that we just read, some versions say seraphim, right? And it describes, uh, I, I believe it means burning thing, and it's only used here in the book of Isaiah. Nowhere else is that found throughout the Bible. However, the beings that he described are described in other places throughout the Bible, but not quite exactly the same. And most theologians believe that these, these creatures with six wings, uh, two of them were covering their faces, so they had faces, because they were in the presence of God, and they believed that they just didn't, didn't, didn't have the right to, to look on the holiness of God. They believed they covered their feet because they were saying that, hey, we're not going to take our own path, we're going to follow whatever God's will is. And they were flying around. Now, the same types of creatures are described in Ezekiel, but those ones had wheels for wings, but they're also described in the book of Revelation. And Revelation, <coughs> excuse me, Revelation chapter 4 says each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. And day and night, they never stopped saying almost the exact same verbiage, holy Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And as Mark has been explaining when we, uh, as we've been going through the book of Revelation, that there are creatures and, and, and things that our minds can't grasp that exist in heaven. And it's believed that these creatures, uh, 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 whatever they were, uh, the, the seraphim, as they praised God, were so powerful that when they started praising, the literal doorpost shook and the threshold shook. This isn't the doorpost of a building that man built, that like, oh, they were praising so God that it shook the place. This is the throne room of God, that their praise was so powerful that it shook the throne room of God. That's the kind of praise, that's the kind of life, that's the kind of thing that we will be involved in when we get to heaven. But jump back into the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter, or verse 5. So Isaiah is there. He sees these creatures. He sees the Lord on his throne. He sees these creatures yelling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And he says in verse 5, woe to me, I cried. I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Now, when he says, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty, it's capital L, and then a small capital O, 
and a small capital R and a small capital D. He said, I saw the Lord, Adonai, sitting on a throne, but now he says, my eyes have seen the king, Jehovah, is what that means, almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, and with it he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And I don't know if we get what just happened there, but he experienced what we experienced, salvation. Now, the reason why I pointed out the difference between Lord Adonai and Lord Jehovah is because we know, sitting on this side of history, that you cannot experience salvation apart from Jesus Christ, which is why there are some theologians, and I agree with them, that say that in that throne room was Jesus Christ seated on the throne, but also God the Father seated on the throne. And they believe that the reason that the throne room filled with smoke is because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And confronted with all of this, and I know our minds are trying to grasp it, then Isaiah says, hey, I'm unclean, which is a word that we would probably say today. We wouldn't say we're unclean. We would say we're not saved. We're not worthy. We are, our, our sins have not been redeemed so we, don't, we, we, we can't stand in the presence of God. And then this burning creature, seraph, that's what it means, burning ones, takes the coal and says, hey, I'm going to touch this to your lips, and now your sins have been atoned for. And just in case anyone says, well, maybe you're reading a little bit too much into it, I want to put it up, just that verse, stay in Isaiah, just that verse in the Amplified Version, which says this, with it he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity and guilt are taken away and your sin is completely atoned for and forgiven. Now for us, we say, wait, how is that possible? Because you need to you know, be saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And back then in Isaiah's day, what they would do is they would sacrifice an animal. And when the animal was sacrificed, it was what we call a substitutionary atonement. Their sins weren't atoned for because Jesus hadn't yet died. But they would do that, and God would look and say, okay, Jesus hasn't yet died, so I will uh, allow the priest to substitute your sins, put them on this animal, and the death penalty, because the, the wages of sin is death, that every human is due will be transferred to that animal. And then when that animal dies, we will say that your sins have been substituted for, they were atoned for. And the reality is they did this looking forward to what Jesus would do on the cross, just like we get saved because we look back to what Jesus did on the cross. And all of that is just to say this, that Isaiah, when he was in the presence of God, experience salvation, and this is the part that kind of relates to us what happens next, right? I went too far. Sorry, what happens next? Jump into Isaiah chapter 8. It says this. This is after he experienced salvation. He said, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And again, he's not saying who will go for the Lord Adonai and these creatures, the seraphim. It's who will go for the Lord Jesus and for God the Father. 
And he said, that's Isaiah, said, here I am, send me. And then he, the Lord said, go tell this people. Now, this is a very specific message for those people, so I'm not going to dig into it. But he said, go tell these people, be ever hearing but never understanding, ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people callous. Make their ears dull. Close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, for how long, O Lord? Isaiah said, hey, you're telling me go tell this message to the people, which basically was a message of you guys know what you're supposed to do, but you're not seeing it, and you're not hearing it, and you're not doing it, and there are going to be consequences for it. He says, how long am I supposed to go tell this message? And he said, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged. And again, this is he, the person that said this, is the Lord Adonai. And he said, until the Lord, or Jehovah, has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. After experiencing salvation, Isaiah was sent with a very specific message to give to the people until God's purposes were fulfilled. And they were, because then, uh, however many, 17 years later, 722 BC, they wouldn't listen to God. They didn't turn from their sins. So they dealt with the consequences. God allowed the Assyrians to come in and destroy their nation. But God does the same thing to us, because after we experience salvation, the expectation is that we would go and we would share God's message with the people in our circles of influence. Uh, in the book of Romans, this is what it says. The scripture says, and this is Paul explaining to uh, the church that, hey, whether you're a Jewish believer or a non-Jewish believer, that salvation is for all people, not just for the Jewish people. He says that scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all, richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The reason that's in parentheses, it's a quote from the book of Isaiah. Paul is using, again, the prophet Isaiah, who was called and sent to his people, to say that Every single person, it doesn't matter if you're black or white, it doesn't matter if you're Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, uh, it doesn't matter if you're, you know, Baptist or, or Methodist or Presbyterian, it doesn't matter if you're Asian or Latin, it doesn't matter. If you call on the name of the Lord, you can experience that same salvation that Isaiah experienced. Here's the problem that we face, though, and I'm going to close with this as the band comes up. He says, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? And here's the problem. He says, hey, how can anyone call on or believe in someone who they've never heard of the only way that they're going to hear of Jesus, the name of Jesus, to call on the name of Jesus, is if we go to them and share about the love of Jesus. And this is a passage that has been just taken out of context and misrepresented because it says, that how can they hear without someone preaching to them? 
How can anyone preach unless they're sent? And people have used this, pastors have used this to say, this is why you must invite your friends and family into church so that I, the pastor, can share the gospel with them. That is not what this says. He says, how can they hear without someone preaching to them? That word preaching to them just means to proclaim God's truth. It doesn't mean that you have to be a pastor. It just means that you proclaim the truth of God's words. And it says, as is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. That's in quotes because that's another verse from the book of Isaiah. And that phrase, good news, is the word evangelo, where we get the word evangelism. This isn't about pastors preaching a sermon. It's about us, the church, going to the people in our circles of influence and sharing the gospel. That's how people hear the good news. That's how they experience salvation. That's how they come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. By us going out and inviting them to the table, inviting them to be a part of our circles of influence, inviting them for coffee, inviting them for dinner, inviting them for Thanksgiving, Friendsgiving, gatherings, whatever it is, and sharing our lives with them so that they might come to know Christ just as we have. And I'm going to ask you guys to stand, uh, and we are going to close with this song. God, I pray that right now, the names earlier who we were thinking of and praying for, those people in our circles of influence, that we want to experience your goodness, your love, and your grace, I pray again that you would put not just the names on our hearts, but put it on our hearts to go to them, to share your love with them to be the church to them. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.